All right, peeps, on today's episode of the Kung Fu Genius, there is no Dre, there's just me and Bruce Lee expert and author, James Bishop, who wrote Who Wrote the Tao, which is the source book on the Tao of Jeet Kune Do. Super excited to get him on, so, I don't know, let's get to it. And every day, I practice martial arts. So James, it's awesome to have you here on the uh, podcast. Thank you so much for doing uh, the KFG. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, so uh, I talked a little bit about you and your book in some recent episodes. So you have recently come out with a new book, which uh, all the Jeet Kune Do people seem to be talking about. And so it's Who Wrote the Tao? And essentially, it's a source book on where Bruce Lee got his sources for the Tao of Jeet Kune Do. Um, be, we're going to get into it. But before we get started, what, what gave you the idea to... Uh, to write a book like this about you know finding out and going through and finding all those sources. Well, I had I had done a little bit of discovery back in the early two thousands, uh, which I published in my my book Bruce Lee Dynamic Becoming. Uh, that was a, a few hundred examples of uh, things that were wrongly attributed to Bruce Lee, um, but. At the beginning of this year, you know, I'm I'm always bothered by the the preponderance of misattributed quotes to Bruce Lee on the internet. Yes. Uh, and and finally, I, I said, you know what, I I'm going to do something about this. Uh, so I started this little study. Um, I had over the years, uh, one one of my research projects had been to identify the books that were in Bruce Lee's library. Um, no, no list has been publicly made available. So I've had to do research, and some of that research involves uh, things as granular as um, magnifying the images of Bruce Lee's library and in pictures and identifying books that way. But I've identified up to this point close to twelve hundred books in his library. Wow! Wow! Um, which gave me it gave me a base from which to do this research on the quotes. Um, you know, assuming they came from the books that he owned. Um, and so I began accumulating copies of the books that he owned. And uh, I started digitizing them. So scanning them and turning them into PDFs and created this giant database of these books. And then I started running the quotes against the database. Wow. And that's uh, what, so how, how long did it take you to, so from starting this project to getting this book published, how, how long did it take you to do all that? So as far, as far as the study, to accumulate what's in that book took me about four months, start to finish. Wow. Wow. In my spare time. Wow, that's incredible, considering the book is unbelievably thorough. So for, for those of our listeners out there who, who don't know, this is not just the book kind of citing where Bruce Lee got these sources. It's actually a page-for-page page source book. So page 10 of, of your book it matches with page 10 of the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, so you can basically... Open your old. Uh, it's funny at the beginning of the book you said so you can open your dog-eared, uh, uh, you know, version of the Dao Ji Condom. Like that is exactly mine here. I've had yes, <laughs> there you go. We all have these. Uh, you know, I got mine in the '90s, mm -hmm. and uh, I just opened it up, and then you can open your book to the same page, and you see just you know bit by bit where these came from, and it was fascinating because. Um, 
you know, even stuff like where he, Bruce had his drawings, where he has all the different weapons at the different ranges, even seeing that that may have been borrowed from one of like Ed Parker's Kempo books and uh, just to kind of see. And it makes so much sense because obviously he was a product of the books he was reading at the time, the things that were out at the time. And when the Tao of Jeet Kune Do came out, even as a teenager, I, I, I generally understood that these were a collection of his notes. And I didn't really understand about there being a controversy about the authorship because I think by the time I got it, it already had uh, the um, acknowledgments as to where, like the Hazlitt book and stuff like that. Um, but I, when it first came out in 1975, it was, and you have a kind of uh, an example of the one of the original advertisements for the book in your book. It was basically advertised as a book that was written and illustrated by Bruce Lee essentially as an original work. Uh, in 1975, two years after he passed away, um, and was I think, that? I think mm -hmm. everybody involved at the time believed that. Uh, okay, including including Linda, I think they they were functioning from the belief that these were Bruce Lee's original writings. Got it. Got it. Yeah, because I think that may be where the controversy starts is that obviously Bruce was writing notes on the books that he was reading. You know, this was a shorthand. He didn't have an iPhone with a note app back then. He had to write these things out. Um, yeah, I was curious, uh, you know, what your take was, whether Mito Yohara, where they, they kind of understood that these were his notes from other writings or they really did believe that he was the originator. So you, you believe that they thought that these were all his original ideas? I think, I think they believed that in the beginning, yes. Mm -hmm. during the production of the book. Got it. Uh, and then uh, there's also a very interesting story about the, the first person who kind of caught on to the fact that uh, maybe the authorship is in question. He was this Joseph Snyder Jr. Uh, mm -hmm. who bought the book in 75 on pre-order. So I guess he was like one of the first to get the book. He was. Uh, yeah. For his daughter who, who was doing martial arts. And then he started, you know, after a little while, he kind of had this spidey sense that he had maybe read some of these notes before. And uh, can you tell a little bit about that story about how he contacted the Lee estate? I, f I find that that's kind of kind of interesting how, how he got the ball rolling. Yeah. So he, uh, you know, he got the book and he started reading it um, and he 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 realized there was something familiar about it. He just happened to have a copy of Hazlitt's boxing book, which he bought back in World War II uh, when he was serving in the military. Wow. Um, and so he just something just told him, go crack open that book. And he cracked it open. He immediately realized, you know, that these were verbatim passages from Hazlitt's book. And so he started investigating a little bit more, and he discovered, I think, about a half a dozen authors' contributions in the book, um, and then, you know, set out to contact um, Linda and the publisher to make them aware of these things. Uh, now, initially, they were they were happy um, to to get this information from him, and they, you know, he was in contact with Adrian Marshall, the the Lee Estates yes. attorney. Um, they they added the acknowledgement. They, had, they stopped um, the release of the book for a short time until they've got they got legal permission from those authors um, and added that acknowledgement at the front of the book. Uh, but as he found more after that, he tried to contact them again, and they weren't so receptive to yet more examples of uh, misattributed 
material. In right. fact, he, he found himself being sort of, uh, you know, blocked out at that point. They didn't want to hear it anymore. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah I can imagine it, it may it may have been a little tricky if they had to then go and find more authors that they had to get permission from, and perhaps some of those authors would have either wanted money or wouldn't have been cool with it, so then they would have had to change it, so it probably was just, it seemed like it was just getting a bit more messy for them. Um, so, it, yeah, so that, that's a very interesting um, aspect. One of the things I love about your book, besides the fact that it's absolutely thorough, is that you, you say you found 85% of the sources. So yeah. does that mean that uh, probably more at this time? More since because, wow, because I found some since the book went to print. Wow, incredible! Um, yeah. Can you make an estimate, or is that impossible as to how much of this book is actually originally Bruce Lee's idea, as opposed to something that he, you know, the, the was only inspired from? I would feel comfortable making would be that at least ninety percent of it's not going to be Bruce Lee. Uh, yeah, and I think that Bruce Lee has undeservedly got a bit of a bad rap for that. Uh, I remember a few years ago, even Joe Rogan on his podcast was kind of squawking that like, oh, well, I heard the Tao of Jeet Kune Do was just plagiarized from from someone else, almost as if the uh, Dragon the Bruce Lee story uh, storyline was true, that Bruce Lee had somehow written this book during his lifetime and just plagiarized a bunch of other authors. This book was published after Bruce Lee's death, obviously in a void of you know, a time where people wanted new Bruce Lee material and, you know, anything about Bruce Lee was hot. So publishing his notes, I think, was a very kind of logical choice, but um, maybe because the publisher overstepped their uh, claims about the authorship, Bruce Lee, I think, kind of undeservedly gets a bad rep of, of having released a book that he plagiarized when, first of all, this book was never released or was never planned to, these notes were never planned to, to be released. Um, what do you think about that in terms of like the legacy of what this book means? Um, because I'm sure you got a little bit of pushback publishing this stuff from like the Bruce Lee fanboys, like you're kind of outing him or something like that. So well, let's talk a little bit about the legacy of this book and, you know, why maybe Bruce Lee shouldn't get such a bad rap, even though maybe it might seem like you're trying to out him in some kind of way. So what do you have to say? Well, it wasn't just pushback from the fanboys. Yeah, obviously there was some of that. But, you know, I even, I even got a call from Taki, um, you know, back in 2004 when I released the first book. Uh, dynamic becoming that had the the original set of misattributed quotes and, and he mm -hmm. asked me what am i doing why are you doing this to bruce i said i'm not doing anything to bruce right. I'm, I'm i'm setting the historical record straight you know um but as far as it hit uh, bruce getting a bad rap because of this yes he didn't publish it um and we don't know how these 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 materials would have been published in his lifetime. The the Dao Ji Kundo that he was putting together, uh, actually the content from that forms the basis of the Bruce Lee Fighting Method books. Right. So the stuff right. that that Bruce actually um, had started to produce for the Dao Ji Kundo book is in the Bruce Lee Fighting Method books. Uh, these were his notes, but you know one. One criticism you can level is that clearly he had not cited his sources when he was putting these notes together, which itself is problematic. If he intends to use these notes, he's not going to remember where he got them from. You know, there's so many of them, he, can't, he couldn't possibly keep track of that. Uh, but the idea that 
that Bruce is not a plagiarist simply doesn't hold. Because uh-huh. I personally, I personally have found evidence of Bruce Lee plagiarizing. Okay. From from his days as a student at the University of Washington, Seattle, all the way through the end of 1972. Wow. So things that he published or things that he presented as his own original writing, I have found plenty of evidence that he was plagiarizing. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, you Including mentioned liberate yes. yourself from classical karate. No kidding. There's at least uh, one is, passage in there, at least one, that is verbatim lifted from another source. Wow, incredible. I always felt, um, you know, because of um, Bruce Lee's, um, I guess, inspiration from Krishnamurti, he actually, that turned me on to reading a lot of Krishnamurti. And one of the interesting things is the more I started to read Krishnamurti, the more I started to kind of hear Jeet Kune Do in, 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 in my mind as I'm reading these passages. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people talked about Bruce Lee being heavily influenced by like Alan Watts. And I always felt, no, I think it's actually way more Krishnamurti. And in the back of your book, one of the amazing sources you have or um, references you have here is you kind of put um, by author how much of a percentage of the Tao of Jeet Kune Do comes from this guy, or how much of it is about boxing, how much of it is about this, that, and the other thing. And Krishnamurti, I think, was, what, number three or something, or he was, like, at least in the top five there. And I always felt that Krishnamurti had far more of an influence um, on Bruce Lee philosophically than, say, Alan Watts. Um, and I always felt that Liberate Yourself from Classical Karate was some was very Krishnamurti-influenced. Yes. Yeah. Um, it definitely f- felt like that was kind of ringing through uh, in, in that in that article. It's true. And Krishnamurti himself, his ideas were very, very similar to Zen. Okay, there, there are some, some clear parallels there. So I think Bruce was also studying Zen, as you know it. And I think it kind of meshed very well, um, these two sources of philosophical ideas for Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. Hey, Kung Fu Genius listeners, if you're looking for an easy way to support this podcast, please consider joining the Kung Fu Genius Patreon. You can support for as little as $5 a month and get access to episodes a few days early. Higher levels of support get additional goodies, exclusive content, and even your name in the description. The baller level of support will give you the opportunity to be a Dre for a day and give me a rest from this guy over here. A link for the Kung Fu Genius Patreon page is in the description below. You can also support us by subscribing to the Kung Fu Genius on YouTube, liking this video, and sharing it on your social media platforms. When you subscribe on YouTube, don't forget to hit that bell for notifications so you will know as soon as a new episode or a premiere is available for you to watch. For those of us who listen to us on audio, it's a huge help if you don't just rate the podcast, but also write a review wherever you listen to the Kung Fu Genius, such as Apple or Google Podcasts. I really appreciate it. And now back to me. Going to take a short detour from the book and talk about a video that you released recently on your YouTube channel. Yes. Um, which uh, I, I watched a few times in preparation for this interview. Uh, you talk about um, whether Jeet Kune Do is an open or closed system. Yes. And this is a topic I, talk, I talked about recently about, you know, uh, I, again, it always, even though I'm a Wing Chun guy, I'm not a JKD guy, but I always get asked ad nauseum what my opinion is on the original JKD versus the JKD concepts, you know, binary uh, idea. And, you know, first of all, I don't have any skin in the game. I'm not a Jeet Kune Do practitioner. And 
but that doesn't mean I don't have an opinion. Uh, it's just that when people ask me this, I try to, you know, my, my answer is, hey, if you want to do original Jeet Kune Do and that makes you happy, do it. If you want to do something called Jeet Kune Do Concepts and that makes you happy, go do it. But because for me, I mean, hey, you're only here for a limited amount of time. Go do the thing that sparks joy. But um, that is uh, slightly at odds with what I actually believe in terms of like, I do have an opinion about it. And my mm. opinion was always that Jeet Kune Do died in 1973. I agree. Uh, and it was very interesting when I saw your video that- Or, you or it became it, crystallized. Crystallized, yes. yes. Uh, you, um, I think your video needs to be watched by everyone who practices Jeet Kune Do or, or uh, even wants to know a little something about uh, this topic, about this debate, this very binary debate, because the way you broke it down, uh, not just in terms of the arguments, but also comparing it to politics and also looking at other examples like what happened to Ayn Rand after she passed away, you know, the idea of open and closed systems. Um, can you just explain very briefly, um, because I think it, it's a, just a very fascinating point to make. It also exists in Wing Chun and in a anything, I think. Um, the idea of the difference between an open and closed system and then how that applies to Jeet Kune Do. Okay, so in social sciences, we talk about open and closed systems. And an open system is a system that is open to change. It's open to um, input and, and data from the outside environment um, that allows for continual change. A closed system is closed off to the outside environment, and it's sort of fixed. And I know these words are familiar to people who, you know, have studied Jeet Kune Do. These are, you know, the idea of something being fixed is is a bad thing uh, right. in the minds of a lot of Jeet Kune Do practitioners. But the fact of the matter is, my position is that Jeet Kune Do was Bruce Lee's personal expression of the martial art. That it was an open system in his life in the sense that he and he alone made changes to it, and he was constantly evolving. And had he lived, it certainly would have continued to evolve. But when he died, it crystallized at that point because he's no longer able to make those choices and those decisions. And anybody else that makes them, there's no guarantee that Bruce Lee would have advocated the changes that they're making. And, you know, we need to be realistic here. When people seek out a Jeet Kune Do school to train, they want to train in what Bruce Lee personally espoused, personally practiced, um, and and you know, not necessarily to get uh, you know training in a lot of different other martial arts that you know might not be something that Bruce Lee advocated. They want the sure. Bruce Lee experience when they seek out Jeet Kune Do. Right. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned about you know terms, the words, they mean something. Like when yeah. you bring up a certain sport or whatever, you made that joke about football. And then of course, yeah, well, not everyone defines football the same way. I thought it was very funny. Uh, but yes, I mean, if you think about Jeet Kune Do, obviously there's some kind of idea about Bruce Lee, what he did, you know, right side lead, that kind of idea. And some a lot of what you see in Jeet Kune Do schools nowadays doesn't necessarily fall in line with that. So the thing is, how can they justify still calling it Jeet Kune Do? And then you made a really great point um, about Bruce Lee's Seattle era students, like uh, James DeMille, Jesse Glover, um, uh, was the other one, uh, uh, Cowles, Mr. Cowles. Um, that, Joseph Cowles. They, yeah, they did something different. They came up with their own name. 
mm-hmm. rather than uh, you know trying to claim that it was something like it's some type of Jeet Kune Do or whatever. They came with their own name, and then they that, were able to kind of develop it in their own way. That was clearly out of respect to Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee didn't want them going off and calling what they did, you know, John Fon Jeet Kune Do. Right. Right. Uh, I, I remember uh, the late Ed Hart. Uh, he also had a name for it, which was different from the other guys. He just called it The Stuff, <laughs> which, which I thought was was interesting. I mean, um, yeah, to a certain degree, they've also been able to avoid a lot of that, uh, a lot of those controversies because they're not in that kind of argument as to whether a Wing Chun should or a Jeet Kune Do should be, you know, just that which Bruce Lee practiced until 1973 or... Uh, can be something else. Um, you made a very interesting point at the end too, with basically your advice for Jeet Kune Do practitioners was that uh, they should learn, you know, the Jeet Kune Do, let's say, for lack of a better phrase, some original Jeet Kune Do, learn those techniques and then go on yes. and continue to explore and develop, but that perhaps they should at that point let go of the name Jeet Kune Do. Exactly. Uh, Yes. Um, do you think anyone is actually going to take that advice? <laughs> I think some people already have. I think even before okay. I posted that video, there have been people who have studied Jeet Kune Do and have gone off and done their own thing. I think Matt Thornton, I think, is, is one of those that immediately comes. Right. You know, he gave, right. gave it a different name, and he's, I think he's getting more into the um, jiu-jitsu uh, right. area there. Um, and I'm not a purist. You know, I'm... I went, I studied at a concept school, mm-hmm. um, you know, so I've had exposure to the things like Kali and, and jiu-jitsu and, and those sort of things that you might find at a concept school. Now, my concept school was very clear about, you know, today we're studying jiu-jitsu, not Jeet Kune Do. Right. Uh, and I think most schools, you know, do a good job of doing that. Most concept schools do a good job of doing that. Um, but I don't think that Everybody is doing the best job at clearly delineating that. And one of the issues I see with Jeet Kune Do concept is the same problem I see with things like abstract art and things like rap. They're, they're avenues of artistic expression, but there's also something baked into those avenues that allow for um, lesser talent, so to speak, to to kind of do anything under the banner of these of these titles right sure um you know so anybody can do anything call it abstract art we know there's a lot of fairly untalented people that can put together a hip-hop song you know and again sure. i'm not i'm not knocking hip-hop there's wonderful artists in the area but yes. it's like abstract art kind of creates the opportunity for lesser talents to you know, declare themselves an artist or a hip-hop artist, things like that. Right. I think Jeet Kune Do Concepts has the same problem. I think we see, not so much in the U.S., but I, I see globally, a lot of people using the idea of Jeet Kune Do Concepts to set themselves up as an instructor without any real training in Jeet Kune Do. Like they, some of them may never have even met a Jeet Kune Do instructor, and yet they're setting up a school and they're calling what they do Jeet Kune Do because it's a concept. Right. Yeah, it seems that they, uh, on that side, um, on the Jeet Kune Do concept side, is that they've, they've turned the, the term Jeet Kune Do, it's so nebulous as to kind mm-hmm. of, it can kind of mean everything. And when yes. something means everything, it ultimately means nothing. It's not defined anymore. And I think that um, 
there are a lot of great guys out there on the concept side, like uh, Burton Richardson and guys who are doing really, really amazing stuff. And, uh, and it, it can be argued that maybe Bruce Lee would have gone in this way, but I think the problem is making that assumption and then still using the name. You had, I think the best line in that video is you were like, the problem is the name. It's, the it's, is, is using it. And, and, um, and to that, you also mentioned that Bruce Lee, like Lao Tzu, like many philosophers, contradicts himself. Um, yes. You know, like the, the great line, which I had heard before about, you know, the, the Tao Te Ching, you know, the, you know, the opening line is like, you know, the true Tao that can be defined is not the true Tao or whatever. Yeah, the Tao that can yes. be told is not the true Tao. Yes, and then goes on to write, you know, 5,000 characters or whatever on that yes. topic, right? And uh, Bruce Lee also um, seemed to have kind of talked out of both sides of his mouth in terms of the definition of it. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think about that? So when, when there are contradictions, like uh, you mentioned the letter that he sent to Jerry Poteet, who wanted to kind of, who, who kind of asked for permission to mix some of the Jeet Kune Do stuff with the Kenpo that he was doing, and then Bruce really didn't seem to be for that. He was saying this is, you know, to teach this is a denial of this and you sh they should be taught separate. But then at the same time talking about how he hopes that Jeet Kundo frees his followers from the shackles and bonds of that. So um, as you have studied... Said, Bruce, also mm -hmm. said, uh, Bruce also said that the name Jeet Kundo, if it's a, a point of contention, it should just be wiped out. It's just a name. Yes, yes. Right? Um, as you've obviously studied philosophy, and this is definitely yeah. one of your uh, wheelhouses, um, these kind of contradictions that exist in great philosophical traditions, um, particularly how Eastern. do those? Yes, how, how do those things get squared away? I mean, um, is it? Uh, I mean, how how does one? explain that is is it simply a contradiction and then one says okay there's a problem with this philosophy or is it normal and acceptable that there are contradictions in a well, philosophy? like I, I don't i don't know what the arguments about that are how how, how they go around well, the, we the western mind tends to over fixate on these contradictions i think the eastern mind accepts them as a normal part of the philosophical process right. uh, so you know Western philosophers can very often struggle with these concepts in, in Eastern philosophy where the, you know, the Zen Buddhists, for instance, will, you know, be perfectly okay with the contradiction. Right. Exactly. Uh, so I don't know that they are resolvable. First of all, I think Bruce Lee, you know, at different times had different thoughts about his art. Um, you know, even there at the end, I think he fluctuated. Um, Clearly, it's some sort of style, even though he called it, I have not created a new style. But right. if, it's, if it's distinctive, if it, if it has uh, techniques and responses that distinguish it from another martial art, so that you can see a, a, a practitioner of Jeet Kune Do um, doing their thing, and you can say, that's Jeet Kune Do, then it is a style. Right. Right? Yes. It's a style. If it's distinctive... There's something stylistic to it that you can recognize that differentiates it from other martial arts. Um, so I don't think he, he, he liked this philosophical idea, but in actuality, um, it was a style. Right. What, what do you think about, you know, because 
Uh, I, I always joke that I'm like, you know, Michael Jackson in the thriller music video where he's just eating popcorn while the movie's going on. Whenever I see Jeet Kune Do guys going at it in the comments, I will often actually post that GIF file of Michael Jackson eating the popcorn, just watching these guys go at it. And in addition to the kind of uh, very binary original JKD versus JKD concepts, then there's also another kind of sub-argument between the division between Jun Fan Kung Fu and Jeet Kune Do. Is this something that you've analyzed at all? Do you have an opinion or anything to say about that? Because that seems to be another hair that gets split among uh, well, some of the JKD Well, that's just groups. the distinction. Yeah, that's just the distinction that Dan Inosanto made to differentiate the two. Um, he chose to call the techniques, the specifics, uh, Jun Fan Kung Fu, um, and then referred to Jeet Kune Do as an overall concept. Um, not not everybody that studied under Bruce holds to that view. That's why the nucleus was created, right? Uh, because they thought that the they thought all of these original students of Bruce Lee and his wife thought that what Jeet Kune Do was was getting diminished um, by this looseness of the terminology, and so they put together the nucleus to kind of preserve the the techniques in the martial art as Bruce Lee advocated. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's just an argument of semantics. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yes. Uh, interesting. Uh, also, uh, so if we come back to your book here, uh, one of the things I think that some people misunderstand a little bit about JKD is they see a heavy boxing influence, maybe because of the way Bruce moved in some of his films, like Way of the Dragon, but... It's very clear that fencing is probably one of the primary influences in terms of, let's say, JKD at distance. Would, would you agree with that? Or um, because the lion's share of the notes are about fencing, but that just might be because Bruce had the most interest in that. But did that actually translate to what he was teaching and doing? Do you think that fencing has a, more of an influence on JKD or, or boxing? Or is that uh, one of those things that's undefinable or difficult to, to, um, to say? Well, I think it had a significant influence. Uh, you know, I can't really say in terms of a percentage, but certainly I think Western boxing and fencing, um, one could make the argument that they had more of an influence than Wing Chun. They're, they're toward sure. um, What I see in the Tao of Jeet Kune Do certainly supports that. Most, right. of, most of the material taken from the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, that's not the, you know, the philosophical stuff, but is the technique stuff comes from those two um, sports, those two practices. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I also think that being that, obviously, the Tao of Jeet Kune Do is a collection of Bruce's notes based on the books that he had at that time. One, there were really no Wing Chun books uh, back then that he could have yeah. sourced, cited anywhere, not cited, apparently, just written notes from. Uh, and it was also the one art that he had formal training in, so maybe that was a reason why it didn't feature so heavily in his notes. I, I did mention to you a moment ago while we were off air that uh, in many of Bruce Lee's notes, um, the Chinese notes that he writes on the side actually reference Wing Chun quite a bit in terms of you know, the, he'll write something on this side in English, which is maybe from a book that he was reading. And then on the side, there'll be a couple things about like, well, this is like Pak Sauer, this is like Chi Sauer, this is like this. And he always used Chinese essentially as shorthand for that stuff. Um, there's also a fair amount of wrestling and grappling stuff in here too. Um, what can you say about some of the those uh, 
those sources that he was getting for grappling. Obviously, grappling is a very big topic nowadays, and it did look like Bruce Lee was investigating those things. Um, what were some of the books uh, that he you know, was looking at that time in terms of the grappling end of things? Well, one of them that he took a lot of grappling out of was Jean LaBelle's book, Handbook of Judo. Uh, and there was a there was a follow up book that Gene LaBelle did that he also took a few things out of. Um, he took he took some of the grappling out of a book Aikido and the Dynamic Sphere. So um, so those Aikido techniques that you see in the book, which are obviously Aikido, when you look at them, were taken directly from that book. Um, and then they he took a lot of from some old wrestling books. Yes, you know, titles of which I can't tell you offhand right now but um but you know some of these books were you know 19th century early 20th century material right right yeah it's interesting i mean like uh you know it, it definitely seemed like unlike you know i come from the chinese martial art end of things and i think that the, the the very unique thing about Bruce Lee, regardless of whether he was citing these sources or he was just writing them down for his own personal um, edification, as Han would say, um, it, it, he was definitely an outlier in terms of Chinese martial artists because most traditional Chinese martial artists at that time would be very hard pressed to crack a book open from any style other than their own, uh, let alone something out, even outside of their own lineage. And it definitely seems that he uh, was definitely more willing than others to do that. Um, now, we talked a little bit about some of the martial arts sources. There was one Chinese book that he um, it did uh, look into, which I think was a praying mantis book. Did you find, it didn't yeah, find a whole lot of Chinese Kung Fu books. Yeah, yeah, there were a number of uh, praying mantis books that he, I, I think there was this whole series of booklets actually, that he took quite a bit from. Um, and uh, they're in the book. Um, I can't remember who the author was offhand. Uh, yeah, so there was like a Praying, praying Mantis book, I think, sometime, from the local multiple, lineage. Multiple Praying Mantis. Yeah, right, right. Uh, yeah, which is also on the Chinese side of things. There are a lot of people who uh, they, they always talk about, oh, well, Bruce had learned praying mantis from this guy or this guy or whatever. Uh, and then sometimes it gets a little confused because northern and southern praying mantis are actually two completely different styles. They're actually not from the same source. And uh, so there's a lot of like people talking about, oh, he learned from this guy secretly and all this kind of stuff. But I think, yeah, maybe a lot of his inspiration actually came from these books. Now, uh, outside of the martial arts sources in there, we, we talked briefly about some of the philosophical sources. Now, one of, uh, one of the, so I started looking in, when I got your book, I was looking at all the different authors and, and I started ordering a bunch of these books on Amazon. And uh, one of the uh, books that your book has now turned me on to is this The Passionate State of Mind, which is by yes. Eric Hoffer. Uh, a, a lion's share of the last part of Bruce Lee's book, especially where he's talking about like, kind of mindset, I suppose, yeah. uh, is, is from this book here. And I also noticed that your YouTube channel is also called The, the Passionate Mind, which is, uh, which is that, is that from this year? Is that, is that where you got this from? Or No, that's not where I got it from. It's the name of my nonprofit that I run, uh, my 501c3. And the reason I came up with that is uh, one of my areas of expertise is um, the study of gifted and talented people. OK. Um, and I, I wanted to create a foundation or an, an institute where I could continue to do research in that area. Uh, but I wanted to make the terminology a little bit broader 
So it's sure. just it's not just that I can I can you know I have a little more room in in how I define what I do. So I chose the the word passion instead. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we talked so briefly about. Okay. Well, we talked briefly about Eric Hoffer when we were off air. He's really a remarkable person in terms of his background. And uh, can you just uh, talk a little, a little bit briefly about uh, what actually makes him very unique, I suppose, among philosophers? Sure. So he's, he's really a fascinating person. Uh, he was uh, born in the early 20th century. He was, um, his, his parents were, were poor. Uh, he, he had an accident um, at some point in his early childhood, he and his mother, and I think the accident led to his mother's eventual death. But for him, uh, I think it was falling downstairs or something like that. And he ended up blind for most of his childhood. And in, in his early teens, his vision came back. Wow. And at that point, he had, he had not gone to school, so he was uneducated, but he became a voracious reader um, the rest of his life. And after he grew to adulthood, he went off to the West Coast. I think he was. I think he grew up on the East Coast. He went to the West Coast, became a longshoreman, which is a back-breaking job working on the docks. Sure. Um, and during that time, he would go home to his little one-room apartment and spend his evenings writing all these philosophical ideas that he was coming up with. These uh, these inspirational insights into the nature of humanity and civilization. Um, and he eventually put together something. His first book was called True Believer. It was about the nature of mass movements. Uh, and it, um, you know, it was a, a big bestseller and kind of put him on the map. But at the same time, he was becoming famous for his writing. He was still working as a longshore. And he did that most of his life um, until, until I guess he got just too old to do it. Right. Uh, but it, what's amazing about him is, is his lack of formal education, and yet he had these incredible insights um, that, you know, amazed the world and, you know, eventually resulted in him getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, yeah, it's incredible. Even, yeah, Bertrand Russell talked about reading Eric Hoffer's books and talking oh, really? about how, how, how sound uh, uh, the philosophy in there was. And it's interesting because it, at least this book here, I don't know how his other books are written, but it's written mostly in short aphorisms. Sometimes they're a little bit longer, but it's almost like it's almost like tweets from back in the day. It's like these little blurbs that are just so incredibly insightful and you can read one and just stop and just sit in and think about it a little bit. They're really, really incredible. Um well, that book was so kind of unique among his books mm -hmm. because his other books, they weren't just little quotable bits, a collection, a collection of, of uh, aphorisms. His other books were, you know, long essays um, about certain aspects of humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you um, talked about uh, the kind of open and closed systems, and you mentioned Ayn Rand and, and her philosophy. Do you have, and what happened after her death, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know we, we kind of, we moved around it a little bit, um, mm -hmm. but when, when a philosopher or the founder of a school of thought passes away, it, it generally goes from an open system to a closed system, but does it necessarily have to do that? Does it depend on the structure of the 
the, the, the philosophy that was created. I mean, can you maybe uh, talk about that example or maybe some other examples? Because I think that what people maybe don't realize about this whole thing about Bruce Lee is that it's actually quite common that these kind of controversies yeah. occur after the death of, of, of a founder of something. So um, maybe you can relate that a little bit to, to the Ayn Rand situation. Maybe, I don't know if there are other examples that, that um, of how these things were solved or not solved after the death of a famous uh, uh, philosopher, so to speak. Yeah, so, so when a philosopher creates their own philosophical system, just by nature, it's their system. And when they die, it, it becomes fixed. So we see that, uh, we saw that in Ayn Rand's case, there was a good, a pretty great schism uh, among her adherents at the time um, with uh, one group saying that, you know, her philosophy of objectivism could be continually uh, developed and evolved and, and another that said, no, it's fixed to what Ayn Rand said it was at the point of her death. And it's, it was that group, um, the, I guess you would call them the purists, uh, that ultimately seemed to have prevailed. Uh, her literary uh, executor, the, the person that she personally chose um, to continue her legacy, holds to that view. Um, so I think that was probably her, her wishes as well. You can say the same thing about uh, some of the old philosophers like Aristotle or Plato. You know, their philosophy is their philosophy. You can't add to it. Now, you can, you can develop new ideas based upon it, but you call those mm -hmm. things Aristotelian, or you call them Platonic, but you don't say this is what Plato advocated. This is, right. what, this is Plato's philosophy. Uh, because, you know, Plato didn't say that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, they, these are very, very common problems. It's just that I think when people practice Jeet Kune Do, then of course it's top of mind because it's probably all over their feed and it's all they ever talk about. But actually this problem seems to exist in every school of thought, religion, martial art, any kind of institution. Obviously we have it in Wing Chun too, uh, between the different lineages, within the Yip Man family, and then mm -hmm. even within one lineage, the people who want to just do it the way the Sifu did it, and the people who think it should evolve and go with the times, and all these people can't, you can't put them in one room together, unfortunately. Yeah, and the, the way that's solved is by simply letting go of the name. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think that, that that really makes a lot of sense. I think more Jeet Kune Do practitioners should, uh, should watch your video. Now, let's talk a little bit about, the, is, is the book available yet? Because I know you sent me an advanced copy and people are asking me all the time, is the book ready? Is, is the book available for sale yet openly or? Um, yes, yeah, so a limited edition, uh, only 500 copies will be made. Hardcover is available right now through my website, whowrotethedow.com. Okay. Uh, people can go there and they can order the, the limited edition hardcover. A paperback will be out probably in January of next year. And that'll be, that'll be available at all regular, you know, book selling channels. Got it. Uh, and your, your other books, are they available on your website as well? Or are they also available openly? They're, they're available openly, yeah. Okay. And you mentioned uh, that you perhaps you're planning on writing more uh, uh, similar books. What are, what are your future projects in terms of book writing? Well, you know, this wasn't, when I set out to do this study, I was looking mostly at the philosophical writings of Bruce Lee, um, because that's my interest. And I, at, at some point during my accumulation of, of this data, 
I decided I would focus strictly on the Tao of Jeet Kune Do for the first book. Um, and um, so my intention is I'm going to have at least two more books on this subject um, addressing the misattributions, you know, wrongly attributed to Bruce Lee. Um, and I will do an academic paper on it uh, for a peer-reviewed journal. Um, but those are, my, those are my immediate plans. I have another, right now, probably another thousand identified quotes that don't come from the Tao Jeet Kune Do, but were wrongly attributed to Bruce Lee. Right. So I continue that research as it goes. Yeah, you could probably make a whole book on all the Bruce Lee quote memes that are on Instagram, like, you know, a photo of Bruce Lee, and then there's a quote that's like Napoleon Hill or Dale Carnegie or something yeah. like that, or yeah. te teach a, you know, give give a man, a f give a boy a fish, and you, you, mm -hmm. you feed him for one day, and like Bruce Lee, like, it's, I, I, I kind of champion this stuff a little bit on Instagram, but it seems like a losing cause whenever these huge channels just slap his name on a quote which is very obviously not his i mean you know how how do we combat this should we just continually try to call this out uh i mean wh wh well, what do you think I, the strategy is <laughs> I, I occasionally call it out i see it all the time i can't just do it all the time or I would, i'd be on these social media um spots constantly and i, and I don't have sure. to that but it's, sure. it's funny you mention that because just this morning in advance of this conversation, I decided to to look at the official Bruce Lee Instagram account. And I looked through the entirety of October. And, you know, they frequently post Bruce Lee memes, quotes. Yes. And every single one they posted during the month of October, I know that it's misattributed. I know the author, the true author of it. With the exception, they did two video quotes from the Pierre Burton interview, which right. obviously was Bruce Lee speaking in his yes. own. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know who's I don't know who's actually handling it. I'm you know, I'm a bit of a Bruce Lee nerd, not not on the sources of all of his quotes, although I, I do generally tell what a, a Bruce Lee quote is compared to something that he had either written or it's just completely misattributed. But yeah, sometimes even the least least official Lee channel will post a photo where they'll say, oh, this is from, you know, the set of The Wrecking Crew, and it's like a photo that was in Hong Kong three years later or something like that. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of feel that that feeling when you see something that's misattributed, uh, you know, you on the quotes and me for, like, the locations and times of things like that. It's unfortunate because I think they, they are also part of the source of a lot of the misinformation. It's not just the people slapping those Bruce Lee's name on, on some kind of quote, and it, it is... It is unfortunate. I don't know what Bruce Lee would would have thought about that so many er, years Earlier this year on Twitter, I corrected a quote that was wrongly attributed to Bruce Lee. It was an Alan Watts quote. And I went on there and attributed and gave it a proper attribution and said, this, you know, this is wrong. Um, and the usual suspects didn't come and like my tweet, right? It was, right. Like, it was like crickets. You know, like all, yes. the, you know, all these Bruce fans that were posting this stuff, none of them wanted to like that tweet because I, I burst their bubble. The one uh, Twitter account that liked the tweet, the official Alan Watts Twitter account. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a bitter pill for some people to swallow. Look, I'm a huge Bruce Lee fan. I think he was absolutely he was a once and 
a lifetime type talent. He was amazing. He was uh, ahead of his time in many respects. But I don't think that any of those things mean that we have to, uh, you know, deify him in any kind of way where we can't have open and honest discussions about, you know, the, the source of his quotes and things like that. And I think people have a hard time separating those things. I did a video about his drug letters last year that came out, the whole Bob, Bob Baker thing. And then you know, every other week I get a death threat on there for having exposed it, even though the letters were already online. But they, some yeah. people read that and they think I'm the one who put them out there or something. And, and I think that... Um, it's, yeah, it's unfortunate that people can't kind of admire him in a more adult way uh, and in a more even-handed kind of way. It's either he is, he is the god of everything or, or you completely hate him and there's nothing in between. On, on the Baker letters, you know, what's interesting is, yes, it's surprising to learn that he was abusing drugs to that level. But those letters also gave um, pretty convincing evidence that in, on some level he was distributing. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, because, you know, there's references to Linda was writing to Bob Baker saying you won't make any money, you know, this month because Bruce is busy, you know, uh, filming a movie. Um, we bought, you know, we bought the, the spoon and a scale. Um, Bruce will have yes. to determine Bruce will have to determine the quality. You put all these things together and it's very clear. That the only reason they would be having these discussions if that on some level Bruce is redistributing those right. drugs in Hong Kong. Yeah. And I don't think he yeah. was some big giant drug dealer. He was probably just selling it to people close to him that he knew and sure. giving, giving sure. Bob Baker the money. Right. Uh, but it was clear that there was some distribution going on. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, the, the last couple of years of his life, um, you know, while he was making those films in Hong Kong, uh, they're really interesting because so much happened in that time. And I think the letters really illuminated a lot of things that were kind of going on when you kind of interlace this with his official day timers and then you put things together and it starts to paint a clearer picture. Some of his erratic uh, behavior there at the end. Yeah, especially pulling the knife on Lo Wei and, mm -hmm. and uh, his collapse on May 10th. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it's interesting, but even just having, even talking about it, you, it's, it's always the no true Scotsman fallacy. Like you're not a real Bruce Lee fan if you talk about these things. And the, the, the people telling me they think that Quentin Tarantino wrote all of those to get back at Shannon for calling him out about that depiction. And it was like, uh, come wow, on. Wow, that is a wacky conspiracy theory. Yeah, but that has, I've had that thrown at me many, many times, uh, you know, and, and the funny thing is that, you know, the Lee estate never made a statement about the drug letters. They just basically buried their heads in the sand. And it seemed to have been an effective strategy. What, um, what because, statement could they make? Yeah. I mean, they're very uh, clearly authentic. Right. Uh, despite, you know, people trying to, to, to ple and, please and, up to otherwise. And one thing they show, unfortunately, is that Linda perjured herself. Yes, because at the inquest. She, at the inquest, yes. She said that Bruce Lee had not done any drugs other than a little bit of marijuana. Right. So yes. And not, only, not only is that perjury, but it's also insurance fraud. Because yes. the, the life insurance payout was dependent upon her assertion that he had not been self-destructively abusing drugs. Right, because of what he put on the application when he got the policy to begin with, saying yeah. that he didn't use drugs, and yeah. And she, she told the inquest and she told the insurance company what we now know were falsehoods. Right, yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, 
Yeah, but on the other hand, when, when I first read the letters, I w it was a little bit of a punch to the gut. You know, he'd, I've been a Bruce Lee fan since I was eight years old. But it, it, it took me a couple of weeks, and then I'm like, you know what? This just explains, you know, I just know more now about what was going on, and it builds a clearer picture. And it's also possible to look at these things in a non-judgmental way. And I think that that's a hard, hard thing for people to do because they always want to prescribe some kind of value judgment to this kind of information when even it doesn't affect most people one way or another. It's just, it's just information. You can look at it and go, okay, well, that seemed to be going on. And it's, it's also possible to not have a big opinion about these things. It's, it's disappointing, but, but you know, for me, it's, it, what's sad about it is Bruce didn't get a chance um, you know, to, to clean up, to redeem himself in that sense. You know, like right. Robert Downey Jr., you know, made Bruce Lee look like an amateur when it comes to drug use. Right. Right. <laughs> but right. he would, but he, he was able to, he fortunately lived long enough, you know, that he could get, get himself help and clean himself up and become a productive member of society again. And, yes. you know, unfortunately Bruce died before he had a chance to, you know, get past all of that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, before he would have the chance to realize his, his uh, dream of becoming such a big star and kind of surpassing Steve McQueen in terms of box office revenue and everything. Uh, yeah, it is, uh, it, is, it is unfortunate. But, you know, I, I'm actually happy that these things came out because it explains a lot and it gives a context to what was a very, obviously a very turbulent time period. And also a time period where he didn't really write that much because m most of these writings was when he was laid up with his back and once he started making those films they were there was really not a whole lot that he was writing at that time no he wasn't um and I, well yeah but i think that the last couple of years that he wasn't writing it was because of course his hong kong career was taken right off. he sure. was busy with that so everything had to go yeah. to, the, to the side um right. and um i think that certainly he had more writing to do and he had detailed plans of the things he wanted to accomplish in life. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to accomplish. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. Well, hey, James, this was absolutely fantastic. I had a really good time. I could talk to you for hours about this kind of stuff. If you ever come to New York, please hit me up. I have so much stuff I would like to talk to you about and show okay. you and things. And so they could be really fantastic. And I look forward to this episode coming out. Uh, is there anything else you want to plug or promote before we get out of here today? Or maybe just give your website again so people know where they can get that book. Yeah, so the website is www.whowrotethedow.com. Uh, and you can order the limited edition hardcover there. Yeah. Or if you choose, you can wait for the beginning of next year when the paperback comes out um, in all the usual places. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much. And I look forward to maybe talk to you again in the future when the next book comes out. And maybe after I read this, your, your book again, it's one of those books you have to kind of read and reread. It's not a one time through type book. I'll have more things to discuss with you. So thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Okay. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of The Kung Fu Genius. As always, don't forget to subscribe to The Kung Fu Genius. Like this episode. Hit that bell for notifications. If you have any questions or ideas for future interviews, go ahead and write those in the comments below. And as always, I'll see you guys next time. 
word is I'm a kung fu genius Technique speaks for me, not lineage Forget Jet Li, cause I'm the one Many call me Sifu, but to you I'm Seekung And I produce masters, you surpassed us Your kung fu stiffer than corpse and caskets City Wing Chung is the house I built Violate the gate and your blood gets spilt Alex Richter, always the victor Thank <laughs> you.